Well, good morning and welcome to Westbridge Church. My name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here. It's awesome to have you with us. Hello to those of you in our parent viewing area. That's a great option if you have uh, small children you prefer to keep with you during the service. And those of you joining us on our online campus as well, great to have you here. Uh, This last week, I was uh, texting my wife and... um, uh, she actually had sent me a text message because she noticed a charge uh, on our credit card and she wanted to know what it was. And she said, hey, uh, do you know what this charge for Evernote is? And Evernote is an app that I use to keep track of notes for uh, messages and talks. And so I messaged her back and I said, yeah, it's an app I use to take notes for my talks. Uh, and somehow uh, with these sort of short sausage fingers that I have, uh, it did not come across like that. Somehow it had actually changed one of the words in my text message and I didn't realize it. And so I ended up changing the word notes, uh, uh, notes on my talks to the word gals. And so what I texted her is, it's an app that I use to take notes on my gals. (laughs) And all of a sudden I see the three little dancing dots, you know, that says there's a reply coming back. And she said, your gals, wow, can't keep track of all your gals, huh? And I'm like, what? And then I'm like, oh my gosh, no, no. So anyways, uh, I looked at that text message and of course realized that it had uh, auto, auto-corrected itself to something that didn't make any sense. And it got me thinking, uh, even on a weekend message, sometimes there's things that get communicated and you can hear it a different way or it gets translated differently. And that may happen today. So today is a, a disclaimer on the front end that um, I'm going to try to communicate this the best that I can, but I do have stubby sausage fingers. So I hope that this comes across in the heart that it's intended. So here's why this needs a little disclaimer. It's going to have the appearance or the feel as though I personally just kind of came up with this and like the the idea for this talk on this particular weekend uh, because there's some kind of agenda behind this and there's not. Okay, I got to tell you, this has been a topic that I've been thinking through for years. It's something that's really been on my heart. It's something that uh, I've really been considering and mulling over and just felt like, man, with this series, this is the best time for us to jump into this topic and put together some thoughts on it. So here's the disclaimer. Some of you are going to think that I'm specifically talking about the season that we've been in over the last two years called the COVID-19 pandemic, and that's not my intent, okay? And uh, while that's relevant to this topic, here's what I'm going to ask you to be willing to do. This is not so much a, uh, a tactical talk on like, okay, when we get done, we're going to do A, B, and C, and we're going to walk out of here, and we're going to do those action steps. Today is much more of a, uh, perhaps the way that you and I see the world, perhaps the way that we view things, and the way that we think needs to be challenged a little bit by God. Maybe the way that we uh, view things... Uh, there's a little room for God to challenge us in our thinking. And so that's been the theme of this series. The theme of this series has been this, and we're kind of wrapping up this series today, is that we tend to take good things and unintentionally we elevate them to ultimate things, and eventually they become God things. And so the idea behind this series is that unintentionally what we do is uh, we take things that are not bad in and of themselves, but we, we seek to get something from them that we should actually be getting from God. And when we do that, we create functional gods out of these things. Now, these aren't words that we typically use. <clears throat> we don't typically say that we've made a god out of um, 
you know, food or uh, a god out of sex or, uh, you know, a god out of, uh, you know, you name it, entertainment or money. We don't say that these things are gods in our lives, but functionally speaking, we tend to worship those things. In other words, they're things that we are devoted to. They're things that we sacrifice for. They're things that we uh, find escape or sanctuary in. Uh, They're things that we uh, essentially elevate to the place or try to get something from those things that we should be finding in God. And we end up putting our trust in something temporary to satisfy the eternal longing of our soul. And so we've been using this definition that we got from a pastor named Tim Keller who says this, idolatry is this, anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give you. And when you try to get it out of something else, something that isn't bad in and of itself, isn't wrong, isn't sinful in and of itself, but you use that thing to try to extract something from that that you should be getting from God, we end up elevating that thing to the place of God in our lives and it wreaks havoc with our life. We actually become a slave to that thing. And so why the disclaimer around this week? Well, here's why. I know the majority of everything I said makes zero sense right now, but let's start with this phrase. Be safe. We say that all the time, don't we? I say it to my kids when they leave. Hey, drive safe. When, when my daughter's heading home from work, hey, drive safe. Be safe. It's just like, sort of like a, a default setting kind of phrase that we say to people as they're leaving, as they're coming towards us. We live in a culture that is strongly committed to safety. Now, before we jump to any conclusions, safety is not wrong. I, am, I like safety. I don't want to not be safe. And the reality is that most of us still lock the doors on our vehicles and in our house at night. Like, I don't think anybody just goes, hey, it's time for bed. I'm going to go make sure that the doors are unlocked. Right? No, nobody goes, hey, uh, I I'm gonna, think I'm going to park the car, and uh, oh, hold on, let me just unlock the doors before I leave. Like, there's, there's just some common sense things. There's some wisdom there, right? Uh, when I ride a bike, I wear a helmet. Common sense, right? Uh, that's for safety. We spend time training our kids how to drive so that they can be good drivers. That is in the name of safety. And so I'm all for safety. There are good and wise things that we do when it comes to safety. But here's my concern on this, and this has been my concern for several years. And this is why I want you to think this is not a, this is not a COVID thing. This is just a, a human thing. Our appetite for safety is oftentimes, and I think, it's, I think it's moving more and more in this direction in our culture, our appetite for safety is leading us to reject any kind of sacrifice or suffering. And here's why. The God of safety is all about self-preservation. Safety can become something that we elevate to first in our lives. It's the very first priority. And when we do that, what we end up doing is functionally we make that a God that we worship. We become a slave to safety. We, we, we got to make sure that uh, everything is safe all the time, and we lower the risk as much as possible, and we raise the fences as much as possible, and that's kind of where we're at as a culture. And when I do that, I often can't do the things that God is asking me to do because it's not safe. In fact, I would go so far as to say that in many, even in, in, in churches and in, in Christian circles, there's this idea that God wouldn't even ask me to do something that isn't safe. Like, that's not even in God's will. If there's something that doesn't seem safe, why would God even ask me to do that? And in reality, when you read through the scriptures, I mean, they're filled with stories of people who set safety aside for the sake of God's kingdom, 
who did things that ultimately were not safe, but they saw the bigger picture. And the scriptures are filled with the accounts of men and women who took risks, not because it was safe, but because it somehow moved God's kingdom forward. And the idea of being on mission and obeying what God was asking them to do was more important than their temporary short-term safety. Subtle trap for us as followers of Jesus, especially for those of us who live in the United States of America in the 21st century, because we live in relatively safe environments. Uh, we, we tend to think if we're safe, we must be doing God's will. Like if somehow suffering or sacrifice are to be avoided at all costs. But this is something that people have been dealing with for a really, really long time. It isn't unique to us. In fact, in Matthew chapter 26, we find the story of Jesus, and he's being arrested. He's being taken into custody by the Jewish leaders, and he's going to be questioned. And in this story, we discover that uh, there's several of his disciples that kind of scatter. In fact, one in particular is a guy named Peter. Now, Peter has been following Jesus for a little over three years, so he knows him intimately. In fact, he's one of Jesus' closest friends and followers. And yet, when Jesus gets arrested, what does Peter do? He scatters. He runs for his life, and he follows Jesus at a distance. He wants to kind of see what's going to happen to Jesus, but not at the cost of his own life. Why? Because he's trying to preserve his life. It's self-preservation. And so he wants to see what happens to Jesus, but at a distance because he is afraid of guilt by association. And so he's kind of following, he's following the story, he's seeing where they're taking Jesus, he's kind of following along, and as he's doing that, someone actually recognizes Peter. And they say, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? Aren't you one of those guys that follow him? And Peter denies it, absolutely not, I've never met the man. And then he's sitting around a fire, and somebody else recognizes him and says, I'm pretty sure you're one of those guys that follow Jesus. He said, nope, I've never met the guy. And then somebody else, three times in one night, says, no. Surely you're one of those guys that are his disciples. And he says, I swear to you, I've never met the man. I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately he regrets it because he recognizes. He has traded something incredibly valuable under the, the guise of self-preservation. And we all deal with this on some level, don't we? Don't we all kind of face the idea of self-preservation, that somehow that's in our hands, that we need to be safe? There's a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. I want to just share a couple of quotes from you, with you from that book. Uh, the book says this, uh, safetyism, which is a great word. It's like they made that up, but I, I like the word. Safetyism refers to a culture or belief system in which safety has become a sacred value, which means that people become unwilling to make trade-offs demanded by other practical and moral concerns. Safety trumps everything else, no matter how unlikely or trivial the potential danger. You can see how safety can become functionally a God in our lives, something that we serve, something that we give our time and attention and efforts to on a constant basis. And again, this is, this is what we've been talking about since week one of this series, is that none of these things are inherently wrong or bad or sinful in and of themselves. They're simply things that when elevated to first position in our lives actually demand more from us than they actually give to us. And Jesus doesn't want us to live that kind of life. There's another quote from this book. It says this, a culture that allows the concept of safety to creep so far that it equates emotional discomfort with physical danger. Now think about that, emotional discomfort. We're at a point where it's like, even if I feel bad, 
that's, that's not acceptable. I feel unsafe. It, it equates emotional discomfort with physical danger is a culture that encourages people to systematically protect one another from the very experiences embedded in daily life that they need in order to become strong and healthy. Like we've, we've gotten to a point where safety means I can't even feel emotionally uncomfortable. And yet, when I was growing up, the idea of being emotionally uncomfortable was how you developed grit. It's how you developed determination. It's how you developed a little bit of a thick skin. It's how you developed the ability to get through difficulty. And the reality is you need that to become strong and healthy. you got to flex those muscles a little bit. It seems that suffering doesn't seem to appear to be something to always avoid. In fact, uh, going through this experience with, that the Apostle Peter went through as he's following Jesus... And he, he immediately realizes, you know what, I, I've traded this in because I, I was looking for self-preservation. But about 30 years later, Peter becomes one of these guys who is one of the leaders in the church. And he actually writes to followers of Jesus who are spread throughout the Roman Empire. And listen to what he writes. Just in one chapter, several different things that he writes about suffering. It seems that he has learned that uh, there are some things worth suffering for. He says this, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. He said, don't be surprised by it. Don't be surprised at the fiery trials. Don't be surprised at suffering. This is going to happen. This is a part of living in this world. And a few verses later, he says, it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. A few verses later, he says this. So if you're suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. Safety is good, but it's not God. We have a strong desire to be safe, to protect, right, to, to reduce risk to its lowest level. But I don't know where we developed such a safe theology from such a dangerous faith. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The central sort of symbol of Christianity is the cross, which is an instrument of execution. Water baptism depicts a death and a burial and a resurrection. Communion, which we'll celebrate in service today, is a picture of the spilled blood and broken body of Jesus. Where did we get such a safe theology from such a dangerous faith? Following Jesus is not safe, but it is significant. And you'll feel more alive than you ever have before. You were not created to live safe. You were created to live fully alive in Jesus. And when we bring safety to the primary thing, it actually keeps us from doing things that God is asking us to do in the name of safety. See, here's what we've got to learn. Number two, our view of safety should be informed by our view of eternity. How we view safety here and now in this life actually ought to be informed by the way that we view eternity, by the way that we look at the big picture. Does that mean you should just take crazy risks all the time? Because, you know, if you don't, you're just making safety a God? Not at all. Please hear me. That's not what I'm saying. I like safety. Okay? I am not a massive risk taker. This isn't about taking risks for the sake of taking risks and then saying, look, wow, that person sure has a lot of faith. Look at all the risks they're taking. I'm not suggesting that at all. This is about understanding the weight of our life here and now measured against eternity. 
Now think about that. You see, there was this guy uh, named Paul. In the New Testament, Paul was a guy who was a follower of Jesus. And uh, he's in the first century. And before he started following Jesus, he used to arrest followers of Jesus. He was very zealous about arresting people who were followers of the way. That's what they called it. And so he actually got deputized by the Jewish leaders to track down followers of the way, followers of Jesus, and arrest them. In fact, he was uh, present and uh, right there approving of the first martyr, the first person who was killed for preaching about the good news of Jesus. And so this guy's a pretty big deal in the anti-Jesus movement, let's just say. And then one day something happens as he's traveling on a road to Damascus to arrest followers of the way. He has this supernatural encounter. And Jesus speaks to him. And he, he realizes he's been wrong about this whole thing, and he becomes a follower of the way of Jesus. And then he starts to go throughout the Roman Empire, and he's starting churches everywhere he goes. And he gets them built up, and, and he turns it over to a leader, and then he moves on to another city, and he starts a church, and he turns it over to a leader. And this is how the message of Jesus starts to spread throughout the Roman Empire. And then he starts to write letters back to these churches. And what happens is much of what we find in the New Testament are actually letters that the Apostle Paul has written back to churches that he has started. And so he describes some of the things that he faces as he is spreading this message throughout the Roman Empire. And he writes back to one church in, uh, in Philippi. And he recognizes their need for encouragement because it's not easy to follow Jesus in the Roman Empire in the first century because you can get arrested, you can get killed. And so he describes some of the things that he faces as he does his best to continue to follow Jesus, even when it's unsafe. Here's what he writes to followers of Jesus who are living in Philippi. He says this, I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. Now, as we read these verses, we discover Paul is actually writing from prison. He's actually in chains, physical chains, and he's not allowed to be with family or friends. He can't live in his home. He's literally in chains. I think most of that would probably add that to the suffering column. We say, yeah, it's not really a great day. And yet, when you read these verses, this is not what Paul seems to be focusing on at all. He sees that there is something bigger that is going on that is worth relinquishing his safety for. There is a bigger picture because he sees his present suffering in the lens of eternity. And he recognizes, man, there are some things that are more important than my immediate safety. And it's not because he has a death wish. It's because he understands his perspective on safety is actually informed by his view of eternity. And so he continues in this letter. He says this, I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. In other words, he's like, I'm not afraid of death. What's the worst thing that can happen to me is that I die and that I'm forever with God? He says, for to me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. If I live, I get to do things for Jesus. And if I die, I get to be with Jesus. Win-win. That's his whole perspective. And so you can understand with that perspective that he recognizes there are some things that are more important than my safety. Because if safety is first, then God can't be. And Paul says he's torn because he knows that there's more to this life than this life. And he longs to be with the Lord. But he also knows 
He's got work to do. And while he's here, he's not going to abandon the work that God has called him to do in the name of his own safety. In fact, when he closes this letter at the end in chapter 4, you can read this in, in Philippians chapter 4, he, he actually sends greetings from Caesar's own household. Now think about this. The whole intent by, uh, of putting Paul in prison is to make sure that he doesn't keep doing what he's doing, which is sharing the message of the good news of Jesus. Stop saying that Jesus rose from the dead. Stop saying Jesus is Lord. Because if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar can't be. And now what you have is members of Caesar's own household who have become followers of Jesus. Think about this. It's absolutely amazing. Paul goes, they thought they were shutting me up by putting me in chains, and all they did was give me a bigger platform for which to tell people about Jesus. They handed me the megaphone. And when you understand that you are safe for eternity, it gives you a different perspective on safety in the here and now. Here's another thing about safety. God comes first because of trust, not because of safety. The reason that we put God first, even ahead of our own safety, is because we trust God. Now, this is what we've been talking about since the very beginning of this series. We said at, at, the, at the sort of beginning of this whole series of messages, we said this. The reason that we often put other things first is because of trust structures. And the area that the enemy tends to deceive us, to attack us the most, is in the areas of trust structures. In who or in what am I ultimately putting my trust to find lasting, meaningful satisfaction and fulfillment in this life? That's the fundamental question for followers of Jesus. In who or in what will I place my trust to satisfy the longings of my heart? And the goal of the enemy is to get us to put our trust in other things. If I, can, if I can put my trust in safety and put that first, then God can't be. In other words, we don't put God first because we think he'll keep us safe in this life. If you're following Jesus because you think he's going to keep you safe, that's the wrong motivation. We put God first because we trust he is the only one who can satisfy the longing of our souls. That's it. Let me tell you something. If you're following Jesus because you think he's going to keep you safe, Okay, if that's your motivation, then the minute that you're not safe, whatever that means in your own eyes, then you will have to abandon your view of Jesus. But Jesus never promised to be your bodyguard. He wants to be your Lord. And there are some things that are more important than our safety. One of my favorite lines uh, from uh, the book series Chronicles of Narnia, and if you've, never, uh, if you've never read the book series, you can watch the movies. But there's a, there's a book called, uh, in the series called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which has been made into a movie now. It's really well done. But the idea behind it is that in the story of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and, you know, spoiler alert, sorry, it's been out for like 60 years. <laughs> there's uh, there's a, a lion named Aslan who represents Jesus. And it's kind of this metaphor. And he represents the character of Jesus. And there's a girl talking, and, and she's talking to Mr. Beaver. And, and in the book, Mr. Beaver is talking to Susan, and, and Mr. Beaver tells her, Aslan is a lion. In fact, he says, he's the lion, the great lion. And she replies, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mr. Beaver responds, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. And I think that's an incredible message 
He's not safe, but he's good. He hasn't called us to be safe, but he is good. And somehow we got the message of safety. Somehow we've got it backwards that the message of safety is the number one priority and concern in our lives. But if safety is first, then God can't be. And there are some things that are more important than our safety. There are some things that God asks us to do that don't feel safe. Generosity oftentimes doesn't feel safe. It fights against our self-preservation. Forgiving someone who has hurt us doesn't often feel safe. It fights against self-preservation. There are all kinds of things that don't feel safe, that God says, no, this is how I want you to live. And it's uncomfortable, and it might cause some tension in your life. We happen to live in, in a culture where we can gather, and, and nobody's going to bust through these doors and arrest us. But I have friends who are in other parts of the world where for them to gather as Christians, they have to do it in secret. They have to do it in hiding. And it's amazing that they're still willing to do that. Why? Because safety isn't the number one priority. I think the Apostle Paul proves this. He writes a letter to people living in Corinth. And listen to what he writes. He says, I know I sound like a madman, but I have served him far more. I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. Five different times, the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. You're like, okay, well, 39, that seems like a random number. Why does he get that? Well, the science of the day said that uh, if you got whipped 40 times, you would die. So like, okay, 39. 39 was legal, 40 wasn't. So he says, five times I was basically whipped nearly to death. Nearly to death, five times. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Now, we got to be clear, okay? (laughs) Really? That doesn't sound that bad. That was me last weekend. So, (laughs) first century stoned, different than what we think of. Uh, People could literally take rocks and they would chuck them at you until you died. So, very, very different, okay? Uh, Three times, he says, I was shipwrecked. Now, just quick audience poll here. How many times do you think it would take for you to get shipwrecked before you didn't get on a boat again? Yeah, I'd be like, first time, dude. Like, if I was on a bad cruise and I got sick, I don't think I'd get on a boat again, you know? Three times, he says, I got shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I've faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have uh, I faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. And I've faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. That's, that's people who had his trust and then betrayed him. Think about that. Have you ever experienced something like that, where you thought somebody, you trusted them, and then they betrayed you? That's hard. It's not safe. He says, I've worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. He's like, guys, this has not been easy, and I've belabored this point enough. You're like, I get it. We're supposed to suffer for Jesus. I'm not watching this talk again. Jeez. But listen, the goal is not to disregard all safety in my life. I'm not saying, hey, you should become a risk taker because that's what God honors. I'm not saying that at all. The goal is to simply not elevate safety to the point that I'm unwilling to do the things that God is asking me to do. 
in light of where we find ourselves as a society. The message here is not that we should throw off all safety measures in the name of being a Christian. I'm not saying that at all. Take a bunch of big risks so that we can be known as risk takers. That's not the intent. The message is to not let safety become elevated to the point that we're unwilling to take a risk when needed for the sake of God's kingdom. Well, well, what's the difference between faith and risk? I mean, what is the difference between those things? Well, they're both scary. You don't know the outcome of either one. When you take a step of faith, it oftentimes is a risk. But it's not risk for the, for the sake of risk alone. The difference is that faith is about God and directed by God, and risk is about you and directed by you. One is for the purpose of God's kingdom, and one is for the purpose of yourself. Risk is about the thrill, the adventure, my happiness, my conclusion, and, and God would never you know, want me to be unhappy or dissatisfied or unfulfilled, so I'm going to take risks to pursue what I want. Risk for the sake of risk so that I can somehow get what I want, that's not what God's saying. Faith is about being willing to lay down safety, to set it aside if needed, to do something you believe God is asking you to do. So uh, living by risk leads to a life of confusion, where you take risks for the sake of risk, and then you go, God, I did this for you. How come my life's not working out? And he's like, I never asked you to. Living a life of faith means I set aside safety and I take a risk, but it's directed by God for the purposes of God, for the purpose of moving the church forward. That's totally different. God is first, safety isn't. Sorry, Osha. And I don't think safety is bad. Hear me on that. I I don't think safety is bad. But based on eternity, based on our trust in Jesus, I don't think it should be our primary pursuit. And I wonder if our approach to safety has actually caused some of us to become apathetic in the name of safety. Because again, let me tell you some things that aren't safe. It's not safe to start a church. That wasn't safe. But somewhere... For me and, and countless other church planners across the country and around the world, they decided, you know what, there, there is something about this that we have to put our self-preservation aside, we have to put our safety aside, and we have to actually step out and take a risk. Not because of the thrill of the risk or because it somehow fulfills me, but it's about moving God's kingdom forward. Uh, forgiving someone isn't, isn't safe. Obedience isn't safe. Generosity isn't safe. Sharing your faith with a friend isn't always safe. It doesn't always feel safe. There are things that God asks us to do that are risky, but it's not risk for the sake of risk. It's saying, God, safety isn't my first priority. Your kingdom is first. And even if I have to set safety aside in the name of obedience to what you're asking me to do, I'm going to do it. Peter was that guy. Before we close, let's go back to Peter. Peter was this guy who from the beginning followed Jesus for three years. Peter was that guy who, who when, when Jesus got arrested, he followed him at a distance because of self-preservation. He denied that he even knew him. And then we, we find Peter in Acts chapter 4, and here he is again in Jerusalem, and this time he has a whole new boldness. Something has shifted. Something has changed. And here's what it is. He saw Jesus die, and then he saw him alive again. <laughs> Can I tell you something that'll change your perspective on safety? If one of your friends dies on Friday and on Sunday you have lunch with him, that'll change your perspective quite a bit. And in Acts chapter 4, Peter is actually arrested himself 
because he is telling people about Jesus. Now, I just want you to, like, imagine this. This isn't that long. The first time Jesus is arrested, Peter did everything that he could to save his skin. He didn't even want people to know that he knew Jesus out of fear for his own life. Now, here he is telling people about Jesus and gets arrested for it himself. It's absolutely amazing the about face that takes place. And after conferring amongst themselves, those who arrested Peter, the religious leaders, they warned him, do not speak anymore about this Jesus. Because if you do, you are going to face a much worse fate. And they warned him and they let him go. And this is what Peter does immediately after being arrested for following Jesus, immediate, for uh, preaching about Jesus, immediately after being warned not to tell people about Jesus anymore or they're going to arrest him again and whip him and beat him. And eventually, the story goes that eventually Peter is actually executed for continuing to follow Jesus and preach about Jesus. But here's what he does. As soon as he gets warned... He arrives back to the house where he's staying. He gathers up all the other followers of Jesus, and they begin to pray. And listen to this prayer. Now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. And after this prayer, the meeting place shook, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and then they preached the word of God with boldness. I got to tell you, I don't know that that would be the prayer I would have prayed after just getting arrested for that very thing, he's like, help us to do a lot more of that. I would have been like, oh, God, help us to be safe from getting arrested again, right? That would have been my prayer. A lot of my prayers are, God, keep me safe. And these guys are going, God, make us bold. And I wonder what would happen in our community. I wonder what would happen in our lives. I wonder what would happen in our families. I wonder what would happen around the world if we decided to switch our prayers from God, help me be safe to God, help me be bold. God, help me, to, help me to put your kingdom ahead of my own safety. I wonder how that would change things. What if instead of praying, God, keep me safe, God, help me to be safe, what if instead of uh, when we see friends and, and they're heading out and we say, hey, be safe, what if we said, hey, be bold? Not take crazy risks, but hey, be bold. I think that prayer would change everything. I would think it would change our view of safety, not as a license to take stupid risks, but in a way that would no longer allow safety or self-preservation to keep us from living a life that makes a difference in the world. So here's my challenge to you. As we wrap up this series, think back through this series. Is there anything that we've been talking about that you go, man, you know what? I realize one of these things, or maybe even something that we didn't talk about, has actually become first in my life. It's actually become this thing that I've become devoted to, that I find sanctuary in. It become, it's become something that I pursue, that I'm devoted to, to the extent that it's actually become first ahead of my pursuit of God and his kingdom. And if that's the case, what you have to understand is that will become your master. That thing that you're functionally worshiping, even though we don't use that language all the time, but reality is that's what we do, that thing will demand more from you than it will ever give to you. But the God of the universe who created you, who loves you, gave his son for you, and only once for you, doesn't demand from you. So if you've never said yes to following Jesus, if you've never said, I want, I want to make God first in my life, I want to give you the control of the steering wheel of my life, I want to give you the opportunity to do that. If you're a follower of Jesus and you realize, you know what, 
I recognize I've got some stuff that's become first in my life. The key is just to say, you know what, I'm going to repent from that. I'm going to stop doing that, and I'm going to do everything I can to, to pursue God and his kingdom first. And over time, as you put God first, none of the things that we've talked about are wrong, sinful in and of themselves. It's simply putting them in the proper position so that we worship the creator and not the creation. And if you're here today, if you're watching online, and you've never said yes to the invitation to be a part of God's family and to let him be the leader of your life, to say Jesus is Lord, he's the one who I'm going to follow him and I'm going to follow his way, it's not something that you behave your way into. And that's the beauty of the good news of Jesus. You don't change your life in order to follow Jesus. You just begin to follow Jesus. And then he helps you to become everything he's created you to be as you follow. So if you want to say yes to following Jesus, just agree with this prayer as we close. And then right after we pray, we're going to celebrate communion together as we wrap up this series. Let's pray. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times that I've walked away from you. And I thank you that you've never walked away from me. And I pray, make me your son. Make me your daughter. And help me to follow you. Help me to put my trust in you ahead of everything else, to make you first, to pursue you with my life. And God, for every one of us, this is our prayer, that you would be first. That we could say with all confidence and conviction, Jesus is Lord. And that we would live our lives in that pursuit, allowing you to lead us and to guide us. We thank you and we pray this in your name. Amen. Now, on your way in today, you should have received communion. And uh, this is really meaningful for those of us who are followers of Jesus. And uh, if, if, you're, if you're not a follower of Jesus, this won't carry the same symbolism for you. But uh, the Apostle Paul writes about this, and he's actually repeating the words of Jesus on the night that Jesus was betrayed. And he says, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. And what Jesus said is, this represents my body, which will be broken for you. And every time that you receive that, I want you to remember that sacrifice. And so here's what I want us to know, is that... Um, we, uh, you don't have to be a member here at Westbridge to participate in this. This is for anybody who is a follower of Jesus. We also want you to know that uh, the goal behind this is not to be some elaborate ceremony, but rather to be something that we simply collectively take a moment and we pause and we reflect on the love of Jesus. Recognizing he set aside safety for you and me. Recognizing that in the name of love, he actually sacrificed himself. And the scriptures tell us that he allowed himself to be put to death. His body was laid in a tomb. And according to multiple eyewitness accounts, including Peter, including Paul, including the, the disciples, including about 500 other people who saw him and wrote about him, he rose from the dead. And he promises to give you the same victory in your life, the same ability that, man, death is not the end. There's more to this life than this life. And so every time that we celebrate communion, it's a way for us to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. And so Jesus took the bread. He broke it, gave it to his disciples. He said, this represents my body, which will be broken for you. And every time that we receive that, remember the sacrifice. So as we remember the love of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus through his broken body, let's receive the bread together. In the same way, he took the cup and he passed it to his disciples. And he said, this represents my blood which will be spilled for you. And it's the new covenant between God 
and men and women. And that there's, there's a new agreement, there's a new way to, to, to interact with the divine. And Jesus says, this is it, this, is, this represents that. Through my sacrifice, you have unlimited access to God. And so as we remember the love and sacrifice of Jesus through his spilled blood, let's receive the cup together. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for the sacrifice of your son Jesus that set safety and self-preservation aside and instead leaned into sacrifice because of love, recognizing there were some things that were more important. And we are here today because of that sacrifice. So we pause, we take a moment with hearts full of gratitude, we recognize what it cost so that we could be a part of your family. And God, we're grateful, and we pray, give us the wisdom to follow you. Give us the courage to follow you and to put you first before everything else. In Jesus' name, amen.